All right, so we're, we're, we're talking about hell today, and so, uh, yeah, super glad that you are here, um, and I realize today can feel a little overwhelming for a number of reasons. One, because we have talked through a lot of content the last two weeks, and so if you need some context, I'm going to try to, you know, make a message that stands outside of context, but if you need some more context, really encourage you to go to our website and watch the previous messages or download our app, and you can watch that because we covered a lot, especially as some of you are looking at this whiteboard over here, and there's a lot of things written on it, and it can feel overwhelming. Overwhelming, um, but I promise you, in context, it makes a lot more sense. Um, but you don't need to know everything that's going on on there to like get it today, because I get it. Um, but here, the truth is, um, we're talking about some stranger parts of Christianity, and I really struggle to not tell you the honest truth, even if it flies in the face of what we grew up knowing about church, or thinking about heaven, or thinking about hell. We talked about heaven last week. We're talking about hell today, and so today we'll feel different than what you think. Uh, when you think about hell, but I want to be honest. I want to give you the truth as best as I know it, as best as I'm learning it, because I'm still learning it too. I mean, a few years ago, if you asked me, you know, what hell was, I'd say devil picks for fire, I don't know. And, and today it's a lot different. And that's what we're going to discover today. And so it, it, it may make you feel uncomfortable also because we're talking about hell. But anyway, so Stranger Things, welcome to part three of the series um, where we're going to help, hopefully help you grow and, and be more honest about what, what Christianity is all about. Okay, now, if you've ever been around someone, and we all have, who has a tendency to embellish things, you know? I mean, you know your friends that, you know, they say, oh, I was up all night, and you're like, I'm sure you had to have gotten some sleep. Like, you couldn't have been up all night, or I had to work all week long, and you're like, so did the rest of us. I mean, I, you know, um, or, you know, I'm so broke, and it's like, but didn't you get yourself there? I mean, should I, I don't know, and, uh, or, you know, I woke up this morning at 4.30 in the morning, and you're like, yeah, I saw you online, and you were online at like 6.30, but sure, you know, there's 50 people there, 100 people, there had to been thousands of people there, and you're like, I'm not sure, you know, they embellish, right? And how do you treat their stories when they embellish? You're like, I, I don't think that's true. And so you kind of write off part of their story because their embellishment makes, makes that story less believable. And in a big way, I think that's what hell has become. We imagine it as this fiery, subterranean, eternal torture chamber. And in a lot of ways, that's just an embellishment of, of a few ideas picked and pulled here because, well, it makes for great TV a lot of times. Unfortunately, or in the past, it's made for great paintings. Um, in fact, most images or paintings of hell over the years, I can't actually show you because for some reason, nobody has clothes on. I, I don't, because it's hot, I suppose. I don't know. And in some pictures, demons are eating people. And I'm like, I can't show that in church. And so I'm going to give you the picture of uh, Michelangelo's um, uh, Judgment Day in the Sistine Chapel. And nothing against Michelangelo. I mean, obviously, I could not paint this. But even here, I mean, half the people aren't clothed. I don't know what's going on. Um, and that's why I made it smaller. <laughs> okay. Um, so everybody's up here. They're living in heaven, which is great. We talked about heaven, you know, sorry, there aren't clouds that we know of. Maybe there's clouds, but you know, we don't really know that there's clouds. And then down here, there's, you know, a, you know, damnation. And over here is essentially like the portal to hell. And here's a demon like wrapped itself around with its tentacles around somebody. And you're like, what? Like, can that be real? It doesn't, I mean, honestly, as I looked at this and grew, growing up, I always thought to myself, that. That's really like, whoever created hell, I mean, that, that's what you came up with? Like, this, 
it's almost like it doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't, um, it feels off. It just has a sense of not feeling right. And maybe that's how you felt about hell too. You know, it's like, so if I go through my life and I leave a pr- live a pretty good life and maybe I lie and I cheat and I steal or something like that, then a demon's gonna entangle me with their tentacles and drag me down. To, I mean, it's just like, what? The reality is hell is actually a very scary place, but not for any of the reasons that we're told. So today I'm gonna reframe hell a bit for you. Because if you've ever spent some time, which I get it, not many of us do in our free time, logic out in our minds, how does hell work? We come up with very reasonable questions about hell as we do about a lot of religious things. And one of those great questions that I've heard that I've wondered myself in the past are, are questions like this. I have to suffer infinite punishment for finite sin. So you're telling me I'm going to suffer damnation for eternity, even though I had only about 75 years to do it in. Does that really make the most sense? And it makes us question. It makes us question things about our religion, about the religion we grew up with, and it starts to poke holes in things. And and I get this question. This makes perfect sense to me and is, I think, a completely reasonable question if your version of hell is that fiery torture chamber somewhere down below. But as we're going to reframe today, it is much more realistic. And I think because it's more realistic and feels a lot less embellished, it's actually a bit scarier. And I can't cover everything that there is to say about this topic in one particular Sunday. And I thought, well, maybe we could do a series about it. But I thought by like week three of a series on hell, you'd be like, yeah, I'm not coming back for that. You know, that'd be a little depressing. So, so we're doing it one Sunday. And this is where the value of being in a small group, of having coffee or sitting down with me and let's talk about it, comes in really handy. Because we can't get it all today. And I realized last week left some of you with a lot of questions. I, I think in some of your small groups, even like, can we invite Taylor to come talk about this more? Because this was a lot. And so I totally get you. And there's the value of getting together and having community because we can talk more through this. This is to catalyze, to reframe some things, to help you to grow and... and um, be more honest about what Christianity is, okay? So, recapping what we talked about last week, most of us, our version of Christianity goes like this. We live a life, we die, and then we're judged based on either our behavior or our beliefs or some combination thereof. And as a result, we either go to wonderful, glorious heaven or we go to Hell, which may or may not be occupied by cats. I don't know. Jury's still out with that. But, you know, it's just scary. We don't want to be there, right? That's what we believe. But we learned last week that the biblical story is far more grand than that. And it looks a little bit more like this. That in the beginning, in the beginning, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1, the very first book of the Bible, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we learn that in the beginning, heaven and earth were the same. They were one. They're not, sorry, they weren't the same, but they were one. They were together. Heaven was on earth. And it was all good. It was all good. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in, at the very end of, of chapter one, it says, and God saw that all he had made and he beheld that it was all very good. And so the heavens and the earth were completed and all their heavenly hosts. Everything was good at this time. In other words, there was no hell at this point in the story. 
So where did hell come from? That's what we're going to explore today. Hell, to clarify something, this is really important. Hell is a result. Sometimes people ask, who created hell? That's a very simplified way of saying something. Really, the better way to think of it is hell is a result for a group of people, people's actions. Specifically, humanity's actions in the biblical story. So humanity's going along, living a good life. Heaven and earth are one in paradise, right? Everything was good. Hanging out with God. That's what we learned last week. And then there's this great word that comes in here that we all love to hear about that, you know, preachers yell at us about sin. And sin broke everything. Sin was humanity's pride and um, desire for power to come in and say, we got it, God. We're going to be in control. We can figure this out. We don't need you anymore. We want all the knowledge that you have. We want to be our own gods, effectively. And sin broke that. And therefore, heaven and earth couldn't be together anymore. And we do this all the time, actually. This is not an uncommon idea. Um, because what happens when somebody hurts you or somebody is mean to you or somebody that you trust and you know and you love betrays you? Do you continue to have this kind of a relationship with them? No. What do you do? You say, I'm not going to be around that anymore. I don't want that in my life. That is not good And so I'm going to push you away because of the choices you have made, how you have hurt me, how you have broken our relationship, how you've betrayed my trust. And that's essentially what God did here. He said, heaven can no longer, because heaven is good. Heaven, if it is to remain good, can no longer remain with you, humanity, on earth. It has to break Apart, And God does the very same thing. And that's what he says. Um, He said, uh, then he drove the man and the woman out of the garden, out of paradise. And he stationed a cherubim and flaming sword, which uh, turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. He essentially said, paradise, which we learned last week, is no longer accessible to humanity in the way it once was because of the choices you have made, because of your sin, how you have missed the mark. That's what sin is. You missed the mark with me, God. And so we've separated. And then he goes on and he says, and this is not God creating hell. This is God explaining the reality of the decisions that humanity has already made. He, he says, cursed is the ground because of you, humanity. With hard labor, you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall grow for you, yet you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, and for, uh, and for you are dust, and the dust you shall return. In other words, earth is your final domain and resting place. In other words, it's going to be hell on earth for you. Humanity, if you want to choose to do things better than the way I have prescribed it, you sure can, but just know it's not going to be very fun in the end. In fact, it may come to the point at which you look at what's happening on the earth and you may wonder, in the back of your mind, in the back of your heart, you may wonder, is there a bit of hell here on earth? In fact, that's why we have that phrase, a little hell on earth. And the answer is yes. Taylor, you're saying hell is on earth Yes. 
If you have not read some of the news articles lately of how people have been hurt and betrayed, left behind, how people have been persecuted and hurt, how even in, in amazing you know, moments, uh, even in America, you know, we had Super Bowl, you know, yay, and, and what happens, what does the Super Bowl kind of, you know, in the, in, the, uh, in the bad world kind of become known as? It becomes known as a place of sex trafficking. It's awful. We're all celebrating cheering for our team while hundreds of, of generally women and children are trafficked for the pleasure of some. You go to um, Darfur or uh, into other parts of the world and people are persecuted and hurt and put in concentration camps in our past and our present. And let's just be honest with ourselves. My gosh, sometimes earth doesn't feel so good, does it? Now, I'm not saying it's absent of good. I'm not saying that there isn't a part of the image of God in all of us that can bring good into the world. It's just that the world is a broken place. And let's also be honest. What is the primary reason that there is pain and suffering in our world? Humanity's actions or lack of action. Most of the terrible things you hear on the news is primarily driven by whom? Humanity. Humanity. We have effectively, in a lot of ways, created our own hell on earth because it is a result. And earth can feel like a place where God is absent, does it not? Where people cry out and say, God, why aren't you here? And God said, because you didn't want me here. And you really don't want me here. There's plenty of times in our lives, you can tell me you're the best Christian out there, but there's plenty of times in your life where you hope God's not watching. Right? Because you're doing something you probably know you shouldn't be doing. Even if you're not a Christian, you hope God. There's been times when you've hoped, oh, I hope there's not a God because he's not going to be happy if I go and do this. And then you go and do it. Right? I mean, hello, college. Have you been there? Okay. Not because... Not because he doesn't care, not because he doesn't love. In fact, the reason he stays out of it is because he loves. Because he says, I love you too much to take away your free will. And I'll be honest with you, God's saying, I can't be fully present in the world that you've chosen to create because it is opposed to everything that I represent. Goodness and love and grace and mercy and forgiveness and peace. And so we have to be separate from one another. In fact, that is the most simple explanation. If there's anything you're going to take away from today, and there's a lot, anything you're going to take away today, it's this verse right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, that Paul says, he says, this is at the core what hell is. These people will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Why? Or how is that going to look? What does eternal destruction look? Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That is the core of what hell is, separation from God. You don't have to be a Christian today to start to process this concept. If God is everything is good, hell is separation from all that is good. And that is why we can create our own hell. And we experience that, don't we? We've been on the receiving end of someone who does not give us grace, who does not love us as they should. We've been on the receiving ends when our parents fall short of the love that deep down we know they should be showing us. 
We know that this life is incomplete. You just feel that, don't you? As you go through life on earth, you feel there's just some things missing. This isn't right. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this way. We can be on the receiving end of it as well. But that doesn't mean we can't experience God's goodness. God has provided a means by which we can know his goodness, know his kingdom, know his paradise. Over the years, he's created a number of ways. We talked about them last week. But the biggest one that we talk about and I want to talk about today is Jesus. Jesus, who came to earth, who taught, who preached, who modeled for us a way of life that brings the fullness of life. That's what he wanted to do. He said, you're living a life like this, and I'm just telling you, it's not going to get you very far. It's not going to be very fun. What did Jesus do? He went around. You, you just read the Bible. We talked about this last week. Read, read the four accounts of Jesus' life. Just read one of them, in fact. What did Jesus constantly do? He constantly went around the earth, and he tried to create little bits of heaven. He pushed back hell. He pushed back broken relationships. He pushed back sin. He pushed back the worst parts of us, the parts we deny, the truth we try to avoid. He pushed back and tried to get rid of them. That's what he did. And we as the church, when we are at our best, when we are the community of people that are supposed to be Christ Jesus on earth, we're supposed to be the body of Christ on earth, we do that too. We help those who are broken. We help those who have the least. We help marriages be restored. We help parents parent better. We help people love better and treat each other with respect better. And we try to push back at the hell on earth. So this idea of separation is really important. Now I want to give you a bit more context of what hell really is. And what hell really isn't. Because over the many years, we've gotten really confused about what hell is. And for two big reasons. And that is because of what Jesus taught. And we misinterpreted what Jesus taught. Jesus would often, the two biggest ideas that Jesus associated with hell were these two things. Fire and darkness. And you read through the, the stories of Jesus and everything he taught. This comes up over and over and over and over and over and over again. And unfortunately, throughout the years, this has been taken literally. And that's why a lot of paintings or pictures of hell have fire and darkness in them. But I want to tell you something today, and this is, this is going to blow your minds. These are metaphors. Metaphors. Because, my friends, bear with me here. Okay, put on your thinking caps. How can there be everlasting fire and utter and complete darkness? Let me explain it a different way. This makes light. So how can there be everlasting fire which makes light and also darkness? Jesus isn't trying to mix up his words here or get confused. He's using an analogy. And this is how you have to read Jesus when he talks about, well, a lot of things. You have to say, what is the meaning behind that? What is the significance of fire? What does fire do? Fire destroys things. Fire leads to destruction. It takes something that is alive and disintegrates it. That's what, that's what Jesus is trying to get across. He says, I'm not trying to give you the literal images of what hell is. I'm trying to give you the feeling, the sense of what hell is. And the feeling and sense of what hell is is you take something that's alive into a roaring fire and, and you take a, you know, a branch and you put it in there. And what happens? It starts to crackle and wither and eventually disappears. 
And darkness, what does darkness feel like? Darkness feels lonely. I remember as a kid, when I turned the lights off in the basement, I'd run up the stairs because I didn't want to be in the dark. I'd just run up the stairs and I was scared that the darkness was going to catch me. Because darkness leads to fear, right? Leads to loneliness, isolation, darkness. He's trying to elicit emotion from you all, not literally saying this is the way it is. It's a metaphor. We have to think of when it comes to Jesus explaining things, this is what it feels like. This is what it makes us want to think about. In fact, the word hell itself is actually a metaphor. Hell is a physical place you can go today on earth. I mean, not like this, but literally a place you can go. And the reason is, is because hell is a metaphor. Hell is our English word, comes from a Greek word, which is Gehenna, which comes from an Aramaic word, which is Gai Hanam, which is in English, the Valley of Hanam. And you can go home and Google this because actually I did. I Googled this, okay? Because I was curious. I was like, where, where is this place at? Well, here's Google Maps. Just Google it. Where's hell? Google Maps. Okay, it's right here. This is the Valley and they have a nice park there, um, by the way. And, and when I went to Israel, this is where, we, this is where we'll stay. Um, uh, if we get to do another trip to Israel and some of you come with me, this is where we go, right here. And when I realized this is where we stay, this is the college that we stay at, um, I realized that, that we actually walked through hell and back. I thought that was kind of funny. I actually went through hell and I made it. But what is it? This place right here in biblical history had a terrible, terrible reputation. Because at first it was known uh, for child sacrifice. There was an ancient king, uh, ancient Israelite king about 700 BC. His name was Ahaz. He came into power and he was all about sacrificing to other gods, sacrificing his own children. You can read about it in 1 Kings or First Chronicles, I think. And, and uh, he sacrificed his own kids right here. And people are like, that's terrible. Eventually it became uh, a junkyard. It became a trash heap where all that was broken and rotting and dying would go. And over the years, it took on the metaphorical idea of what hell is right here. It's all a metaphor. Now, I think, personally, hell is a literal place. But to understand hell, the best place to turn, in my opinion, is Luke chapter 16. And, and in Luke chapter 16, and I'll put the, it up here on the screen, or if you want to open your Bibles, maybe you got the Bible app, you can follow along there too. But in Luke chapter 16, Jesus actually tells a parable, which is a story, that it's a made-up story that illustrates a point. In fact, Jesus took a folk tale, a Jewish, ancient Jewish folk tale, and then he twisted it and used it as a story to illustrate a point. That's what a parable is. And it uses a lot of metaphors, Okay. And he uses a lot of metaphors that his, that his listeners at the time would be very familiar with. And in it, he explains what hell is. And I'm just telling you, hold on to your seatbelts. If, if you turned up, tuned out, tune back in, because this is a wild ride. This was a wild ride for me when I first learned about it. I'm just telling you, okay? This will totally flip what you think hell is. Okay, ready for this? I don't know if you are. Okay, here we go. Luke chapter 16. Again. This is a metaphor. This is a parable, okay? And Jesus is a masterful teacher here. Just absolutely incredible. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor every day. Must be a nice life. Oh, and there was a poor man named Lazarus, 
and was laid at his gate covered with sores. Why was he laid at his gate, the rich man's gate? Because he was crippled. Take a second here. This to me sounds a little bit of what hell is. And you're like, no, but Taylor, this could happen on earth. Yes. That you have a rich man in luxury and a poor man just hoping for some crumbs off the rich man's table. That's what it says. He longed, that's what it goes on to say in the next, in the next slide, longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. Not only that, the dogs were coming and licking his sores. It's awful, isn't it? It's hell on earth. It's hell on earth. Now, both, men's were, both men were given names. Did you catch the rich man's name? Rich man. Jesus was being really wise with his words. The rich man's title, what is a name? A name is an identity. And Jesus said, this man's identity was a rich man. That's all he knew. That's all some of us know. Honestly, our identity has been wrapped up with so many things. Our money, our wealth, our, our job title, it's been wrapped up as a parent. Some of us go so much into parenting as a father or a mother. It becomes our identity. Nothing else matters but that identity. And then you have a man like Lazarus because his identity was as a person, a person of God, a child of God. And one day, they both died. The poor man died and was carried away in, with angels to Abraham's arms. Abraham is a translation for friend of God. So essentially, Jesus is saying, he, the, 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 uh, the poor man went and became a friend of God, a part of the friends of God. And the rich man also died and was buried. You'll never guess where the rich man went. Okay? Now, the next two verses, this is where it really turns upside down. And in Hades, in hell, the rich man raised his eyes, being tormented, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his arms. What did this just tell us about hell? Well, in hell, you can see heaven. You know heaven's there the whole time you're there. And what is the man experiencing in hell? We go on to the next verse. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue for I am in agony in all this flame and all this destruction and pain. This is a, par uh, the, a metaphor again. This is not literally a burning fire. This is, he is feeling himself wither away. And what does he want? He wants relief. The scariest part of this verse, and don't miss this, what did the rich man want? He wanted relief. He didn't ask to go to heaven. He was fine where he was. He just wanted a little slice of heaven to give him a little bit of relief. And notice, he didn't see himself any different in hell. He was still the superior, arrogant, prideful rich man, commanding the poor man who was in heaven to come down 
and help him out yet again. The rich man didn't want anything to change. The rich man wanted to be in hell. He didn't want to change. To me, that is the scariest part of hell. In fact, we're just gonna camp out right there for the rest of our time together. And I'm gonna throw out a bunch of points. The first is this. Hell, hell is a result. Hell is the result of our life's trajectory. It's not a mystery. You're either gonna live your life here on earth away from God, and then you're gonna get to your end of your life and God's gonna say, well, you lived without me this long. I will honor your wish to continue to live outside of me. You want to live your life as a rich man? I honor that. But just know, you cannot live a life as my child and also as a rich man. The two are incompatible. I will not let hell into my presence because I am a good and faithful God. If you're going to live your life away, avoiding God, rejecting him, idolizing money and power and greed and lust and anger, God's response is, and this should scare you, okay. I love you way too much to force you from a place you don't want to go from. I don't want to force you into heaven. You can continue to exist without me, separate from me, but know that it will be hell. C.S. Lewis, in his amazing book, The Great Divorce, amazing, he says this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say, God, thy will be done. And those whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could not be hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find, and those to whom knock, the door is opened. But if you don't want the door to open, God will respect that decision. God will respect that decision. Hell is locked from the inside because our desire to build a life without God trumps God's desire to be with us. If we don't genuinely seek it, it will not open. Well, Taylor, at the end, I, you know, I, I, can, I can see heaven. I can, I, if I can see heaven, salvation, and the kingdom of God, and the dwelling place, and eternal life, and the paradise, I'm pretty sure I would choose heaven, you know? I will definitely choose going with God. No, you won't. And if you read the rest of Luke 16 when you get home, which you should really do, the rich man lived his whole life with an opportunity to choose heaven, and he didn't. And that's not so different from us sometimes, isn't it? We have the choice every day to figure out who God is to us. We have our whole lives to figure out who Jesus is to us, yet so many of us don't try to figure that out. I'm not saying you have to give your life to Jesus. I'm just saying you should probably figure it out. That's all I'm asking you to do. That's all we ever, we ask you to explore faith. And if you get to the end of it and you conclude there is no God and he is not real and there is no heaven and I am either going to live agnostic or atheist from God, 
That is your choice, and God will respect it, as will I. But if you seek truth, I promise you, you will find truth. Because how many people today have the opportunity to believe in a man who died and rose again, yet don't? A man died and rose again. That's pretty incredible. Changed the world, changed the entire Roman Empire in a few hundred years, which all historians agree is incredible, and yet people do not choose him. On earth, God constantly offers forgiveness and love and life to everyone who wants it, yet we often reject it. We don't want God's truth. You know, Pastor Taylor's trying to help me. He told me I shouldn't do this thing, but blah, 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 blah. I'm going to do it anyway because I really want to do it. And it feels good in the moment, short term, maybe not the long term. And God's saying, that's fine. I'll just leave you there. I'll leave you where you are. I will leave you with no relief from your bad decisions, your failures, your shame, your insecurity, and it will feel like and be hell. The strangest thing, the stranger thing, my friends, isn't hell. It's the fact that we love it. We love to remain in our bitterness and our anger, do we not? We love to wallow in our personal shame and pity and jealousy of others. We love to just sit there and, oh, how much better their life is, and I'm just so jealous and envious of them, and how bad we feel about ourselves, and we self-pity ourselves all the time. We tell ourselves, you know, another drink or another smoke or another lie or another cheat won't hurt ourselves, even though we know it will, and it will hurt the people around us. We lie to ourselves that money will keep us safe, and so we build up large sums because somehow that's going to save us from, I don't know, something and it's going to make us happy, but it's never enough. We're lured by the lust of others, and we love to lust on others. We fight to protect our rights and freedoms or just to be accepted for who we are, even though who we are is probably our own worst enemy. I mean, you have been there at every bad decision you've ever made. You've said yes to every bad decision you've ever made, yet we say, we got to venerate the person for who they are. And God says, I love you too much to let you be who you are. You're too good to be who you are. We are our own greatest enemy, yet we think we are our only person to trust. We consider ourselves superior to other people. We look down at our nose, at our neighbors. In some cases, we commit outright genocide on others because we are so much better than other people. We go to great lengths to apologize to other people and reconcile the hurt that comes between us. We love hell. We love to wallow in it. We love to tell everybody about it. We don't want to admit that we're broken and we need salvation. We want to be our own kings. We want to be our own gods. And the scariest thing is God says, I will honor your choice. God absolutely, absolutely wants us to be with him. The question is, do we really want to be with him? Today, may or may not be the day that you choose to give your life to Jesus. I hope it is. But at the very least, Christian or not, I hope you really take stock of what heaven really is and what hell really is. Because if you take the time to process this deep down, you may discover that your innate desire is to actually push back hell and accept all of heaven's promises. That deep down, the image of God is on you and the image of God desires this and rejects this. I believe we're meant to live with heaven in mind and hearts. God's judgment will one day, we will stand all before God you know, usually that's yeah, yelled at you from an angry preacher on the stage. Judgment day is coming, all that stuff. 
And God's ultimate question is, what do you really want? It's not, you're going here, you're going here, you're going here. It's, what do you really want? And God will honor what you really want, to be with him or apart from him. Because his presence, my friend, is always open to seek his joy and his promises. Everyone who seeks the goodness of God will find it. I don't know about you, but personally, I'll just be really honest with with, with you. Personally for me, understanding hell has helped me to understand what Jesus stands for a whole lot better and what God really wants for us a whole lot better. And I feel closer to him. Not because I'm afraid of what hell is, but, but because it, hell reminds me of everything I want removed from my life and the peace I want to find in Christ. It reminds me that hell shouldn't be used as like a bat to hurt people and guilt them and shame them into heaven. Heaven is good enough as it is. We just have to tell people about that and remind them that God will honor their choices. And let's be fair. If you have ever parented or loved a child, that's what you ultimately want for your kids too, right? To honor their choices. And it, and, and it hurts you when they choose to be away from you. But you want to honor it nonetheless. And God says, that's what I want for you too. It's just the end result may not be the goodness you need, but the hell that you want. Would pray with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a tough pill to swallow. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves as we go forward, Christian or not, today and process this, as we talk about it in the car, as we maybe call somebody up, as we talk about it in our small group, that we're honest, not afraid, that we seek the truth, not the lies, that ultimately maybe in our seeking of of what heaven and hell is or what Christianity is all about, that we would find you and we would seek the truth. And sometimes that requires us to reframe some positions and ideas of things that we've held for a long time, but that ultimately the truth will set us free. And that's what we need to seek. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to seek that, to find that. Hopefully, Lord, ultimately to find you. Help us to be honest with ourselves, honest with this message, honest with what this is doing inside of us so that we can grow, that we can be challenged but changed, so that we can find the heavenly promises that you offer to us as every good loving father should. Help us to trust in the truth that you want to get us across to us the truth that Jesus brought to us, to follow you, to put our faith, our trust in what we cannot see in you and all the goodness it brings. In your name I pray, amen.